You're listening to TIP. Dear listener, it's time. Today I present to you the quarterly investing mastermind meeting. I love these discussions with the best in the business. Tobias Carlyle, Wes Gray, and Jake Taylor. Today we'll be discussing ESG investing, investing in international markets, and how we as investors should think about benchmarking our performance, and much, much more. I hope you enjoy the discussion as much as I did. Here is the 2021 Q4 Mastermind Meeting. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Welcome to The Investor's Podcast. I'm your host, Dick Broderson, and today we lined up the A-team for you, ladies and gents. I'm here with Toby Carlisle, Jack Taylor, and Wes Gray. Welcome back on the show. Hey, Stig. What's up? Glad to be here, as always. Great, guys. It's always good to, uh, to have you here on the show. And I wanted to start out with a very, what is a timely question? ESG seems to be all the rage in the investment world right now. And if someone's sitting out there and like, yeah, I know I live on the rock. What is ESG? Is there any rage at all? So that stands for environmental, social, and governance. And so over the years, uh, we've gotten multiple requests about you know, defining what's ethical to invest in or not. And it's such a tricky question because it quickly turns into you know, political, heated debate, which is not where I wanted to go with, with the question at all. I guess there's already enough polarization going on. So perhaps we shouldn't go that route. But you know, Warren Buffett, uh, a billionaire we started a lot, you know, he's been asked multiple times about this if, if you go back and watch the, the annual shareholders meetings. And you know, he talks about how this is an individual choice. And he mentioned the example of you know, him and Charlie, they had the opportunity to invest in tobacco company, which were a really good business deal, but they decided to walk away from it because the deemed it wasn't, it wasn't the right thing to do. But then on you know, the other hand, Buffett also acknowledged that you know, he doesn't mind investing in Walmart and you can go to Walmart and buy cigarettes. So with all of that being said, I want to throw it back over to the group. And I don't know if we can start with you, Jake. Uh, how do you think about ESG, if at all, whenever you invest? It's not a large component, I guess, of my process. But what I would like to say is that what makes a good company? Like You want a long, sustainable business that will last a really long time. And as an investor, that's also what I'm looking for. I want a really long duration business that I can know and understand and own and earn similar to the results of the business. Well, the really good businesses, the good operators, the good management, they've been thinking about all the stakeholders for a long time. So there's nothing really new about ESG. Japan has this thing they call the five joys in business. And those were the suppliers, the employees, the regulators, the communities that the businesses operate in, and then the shareholders. And so everyone is part of this ecosystem and the good management, we're, we're already managing to create win-win outcomes for everyone in the ecosystem. And so there's really nothing that new to me about ESG. It's just kind of a, a fancy name. And honestly, I, I think a little bit of a, a marketing ploy in that there's this saying that like if, if ducks are quacking, then, then Wall Street will feed the ducks, right? And so if everyone's asking for ESG, then like, okay, here you go. We're going to put this, we're going to call this ESG and you're going to get it. Um, so I, I don't find it. I kind of feel like it's a, a much ado about nothing. And then we can charge another 30 basis points if you call the ESG, because that is how we're seeing that ESG is being promoted, which is not the same as saying that I don't believe it's important to invest in ethical companies. It is really important to me. You just also need to see the other side of how can this be used against you? Wes? I have a two-sided brain, but I'll explain that. So on personal investments on things that we create to generate returns and what we invest our own money in, you never should tie emotions to investing, in my opinion. So for our own stuff, we don't involve it. We buy cheap, high quality, or we buy winners, period. It's evergreen. Now on the business side, because remember, we launch ETFs on behalf of other people. I'll tell you with certainty, this is a huge deal, massive market, going to have probably huge effects on asset pricing. And there's investing, unfortunately, is going to get political if it hasn't been already. And I foresee very 
near term future where people actually identify with their portfolios politically. And they'll expose that, show that. I think we're going to see a whole new world of emotional involvement inside of portfolios, which I think is awesome as a factor investor <laughs> who's a, you know, old school, like, let's just try to make money guy. But it's going to be interesting, I think, over the next three to five years here. Toby, if I throw it over to you, because I know, like, with the way deep and sick the tickers uh, for your ETF are constructed, you know, there are different rules that have to follow to be a part of the, of the portfolio. Do you have any kind of ESG filter in? Is it something you considered? Uh, how do you think about this? They're not ESG funds. Uh, they're not explicitly set up to be ESG funds. They do score okay, according to Morningstar, along some of those lines, but that just might be the investment style sort of manifesting as lowish sort of carbon, that sort of stuff. I think it's usually a bad idea to mix your personal biases in with your investing if, if your objective is returns. If your objective is something else to express your political opinions, then by all means, find the fund that achieves that end. I think that the research is the research is a little bit mixed, but the pitch for ESG is that it lowers the cost of capital and therefore you can starve the worse industries and you, you feed the better industries and that should lead to more money flowing to better things. The problem is that you know we poll 10 people and we'll get five people diametrically opposed to the other five people about what good ends are. There's a MAGA ETF out there that you can buy and there are probably political ones on the other side of the spectrum that you can buy and they both think that they're doing the moral thing by investing in those. The mixed research seems to be that when you increase the cost of capital for something, you get better returns out of it. So that's still going to attract people who want those vice type investments to, to go into those. So the, the pitch would be that you reduce the cost of capital for things that are, score high on whatever ESG components that you, you seek and therefore they do better because they have a lower cost of capital while they're operating their business. But then on the other hand, when you increase the cost of capital for something, you lead it to have better forward returns. So it's, that's why the vice portfolios will continue to exist. I think that it probably all cancels itself out. I agree with Wes that there's enormous interest in it. And as a marketing tool, if I just wanted to be 100% marketer, I'd just start rolling out portfolios that appeal to particular political groups and uh, you know, charge more for them. But uh, that's not what I do. So I watch it, but I'm not, I'm not involved in it at all. Perhaps let's talk about how it influences uh, financial markets. And I also think it's important to, to say that there's no such thing as a universal you know, accepted standard for what is ESG. Just like the four of us might have some kind of idea of what value investing is, or at least what it has been historically, but there's no like a, a strict rule book saying you can only invest in stocks with a PE lower than 15 or, or whatever that is. It's sort of like the same thing with ESG. It, you, you look at different sources. Uh, I just looked one up here uh, from, from uh, Bloomberg who said like in 2025, a third of the assets would be in ESG funds in the States. So it's something we need to, we need to consider one way or the other. Um, so I, I guess uh, my question to you is, which impact does the rise of ESG have on the financial markets? And does it change the way you invest? And I'm not so much talking like ethical reasons, but are you more thinking, oh, but this is what the herd is doing, or this is where the market is doing, so I need to position myself accordingly. Is there such a thing as that? And, and Wes, I can't help but throw it over to you. You're, you're not just looking at fundamentals in your funds, you're looking at other things as well. So I think there is a massive opportunity for the following trade in ESG. Don't buy things that already look ESG and pretty because they already have that low cost of capital and the gains are gone. And your go forward basis, as, as Toby highlighted, is going to be lower expected returns. But if you wanted to try to have your cake and eat it too, you would go after the ugliest, nastiest ESG firms you could possibly find and then go active on them in an ESG sense, right? Try to turn Monsanto into whatever, like, I don't know what the top ESG firm is, but some, you know, some firm that's really clean. Patagonia or something. Yeah, Patagonia. Yeah, try to turn Monsanto into Patagonia because you would take the cost of capital from, say, 15% to like zero effectively, and you'd get a massive like quadrupling or 10x evaluation. And so I think you're going to see, and we're talking to a few people that actually like operators looking at this. I know there's already some in hedge fund space, but that's a huge arbitrage opportunity 
is for people that can kind of take ugly and make it pretty and then make the spread in the beauty contest. I think that's going to be a big theme. Let me ask you guys this question. Are, are we one bear market away from not ever hearing about ESG again? Yeah, I was going to say it's, it's a little bit more of a bull market special than it is something that people are going to be concerned about. If we've had a very, very long bull market and people, everything looks easy at the top. So just add a few more layers of complexity in to get yourself where you want to be. I mean, I, I actually somewhat disagree a little bit on that. There, there's an element of that, like the sentiment component, because people have the luxury to invest more emotionally. But also, I do think there's a real component of true lower cost of capital. And obviously, going into a storm, all else equal, you know, if you have a lower cost of capital, you can take on MPV projects with you know, easier, you can keep your boat going. Where you know, if you believe that cost of capital spikes during a, a bomb out, well, if you already had high cost of capital, now you just can't get any projects funded. And so I do feel like there, there's some sort of weird like margin of safety in some sense, because I believe that the, the lower cost capital is a real economic phenomenon in the marketplace right now. I believe that, that is real. I think Jake was just saying that is the interest in it at a peak because we've made yeah. so much money for such a long time. And if you if you go back to the bottom to people, like ESG is probably the first thing that goes overboard. Yeah. When it's people outperformed as well. It's had like this great relative performance streak in general, which we all know is fleeting and won't exist in the future. So you're right. You're, you're going to get a shakeout on the, on the performance chasers. But I do believe there's true believers out there too. Can we well, unpack the, that cost of capital a little bit more? I'm curious about so when I think about the mechanics of a, actually like a company getting dollars in the door to deploy into new equipment and employees and all these things, the stock market's a secondary market. The money is not going... When I go buy a share of Apple, it's not like Tim Cook gets that dollar, right? Like I'm just trading places with someone that already owns that share. So how is it actually lowering the cost of capital for, for well, these businesses? So so when you like, if you basically do like M&A activity or, you know, you go raise capital from the street, you need to fund different projects. Yeah. Remember inside of Apple, they run their own capital allocation. They have like a hundred billion dollars. And so to the extent that you can fund higher MPV projects that are above your cost of capital, you're going to add accretive value to the shareholders eventually. Whereas if I'm in a, I don't know, I'm Monsanto, right? If I've got a billion dollars, my project cost of capital is a lot higher. And so the bogey to try to beat that is really hard. And if I just can't find any projects to invest in, in real money terms, I can't add real economic value to my share price. And assuming the stock market's somewhat efficient, like it should be able to account for that, especially if there's, you know, if we're in like a bad regime where some people just can't now fund projects, how are you going to add any economic value is the argument. So, so you're right. But there is internal real decision-making presumably going on at these firms, I would say. There's two issues though, right? There's to what extent can head office get itself into an ESG type framework? And I think most firms have probably gone through that exercise and ticked almost every single box that they can. And if they haven't, then maybe there's some avenue for activism there. But there's probably not much at very big firms. The problem is going to be for the companies that have their core business is something ESG doesn't like. And so, for example, the oil drillers, there's just no way other than getting out of that business that you can improve your ESG score, your environmental score there. So, I don't know. We sort of, we're, we're voting with our dollars to, to starve those industries of capital, but we're still consuming it on the other end. So, I just see them sort of um, doing very well, shareholders in those businesses doing very well. You mean in the, in the dirt ball businesses? There's some that are just, you know, I just yeah. give Exxon or Chevron or one of those as an example. Like a head office can get themselves a green logo and go and tick all of the boxes, but underlying business is the issue. And there are lots of businesses like that. Like you can come up with a pretty annual report and a nice green logo and you can run all of the ads that you want, but you're ultimately not solving the problem that people are upset about. The one thing that's also interesting that I, I've been thinking a lot more about is existential threat. Because on one hand, I'm a huge believer, okay, let's go buy Monsanto, Exxon, all the dirt balls. Because to Toby's point, you can't put too much lipstick on the pig. It's still a freaking pig. 
But hey, if the pig's fat and I could buy it cheap and I can clip that coupon, that free cash flow, it could be a great investment. However, I could foresee pretty near in the future here, you could have a situation where they're just, even though it may not be rational from a societal perspective, they're just like, nope, we're cutting it off. Or nope, we're going to tax it a million percent, i.e. just turn the business off. So there is kind of this risk premium. You also need to put in those things. And I don't know how well it's priced into like an Exxon where it looks great on the dividend yield, but what if that there's a chance that's not zero that it goes to zero, right? That could be a real value play that is actually a value trap. Alluding to a little bit at the start by yeah. saying there's a tension between you know, the cost of capital and, and those existential threats exactly like that, the, the ones that you're discussing. And on the other hand, lower cost of capital, higher cost of capital having knock-on effects on the returns. I think the oil and gas are probably a little bit safer from those things because we actually still do need them, consume them, you know, basically everything that we make almost immediately. The bigger risk probably tobacco, and that's probably why tobacco, they could just decide that societally there's no benefit there. For consumers, probably for the farmers, there's a benefit, but for the consumers, there's none. So that they could just switch that off. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. The Holy Grail of Investing, the new book by Tony Robbins and co-written by investing legend Christopher Zook, reveals the secrets of alternative investments like private equity, venture capital, energy, real estate, sports franchises, and more. It features exclusive insights from investing titans who collectively manage more than $500 billion, including Robert F. Smith, Vinod Kosla, Michael B. Kim, and many others. In the holy grail of investing, you'll discover how to take advantage of the trillions flowing into private equity by becoming an owner of firms that actually manage the assets and share in the revenue they generate, how to take advantage of the two to three times higher returns of private credit as an alternative or complement to bonds, how to invest in the energy evolution and ride the wave of trillions in global investments, how investments in private real estate can work as an inflationary hedge and source of tax-efficient income, and how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right, back to the show. All right, so going to the next question here in our outline for today, I want to talk a bit more about international investing. I guess this is the case for many of our listeners. We are exposed to a lot of U.S. equities, and we, we do know as value investors that they look, at least historically, relatively expensive. What kind of data, if any, would you need to see over the next, say, decade to convert to investing significantly sums outside the U.S.? 
Jake, why don't we throw it over to you? My personal approach is much more to go wherever I find value. So we're already looking internationally and have been for a long time. Granted, I don't always feel like I understand cultural things as well as I probably do in the US. So there's there has to be an even bigger delta on price for me to feel comfortable often, um, or even higher quality. I'm finding a fair amount of things internationally to do that make sense at the moment, especially probably relative to the US. But I would, uh, just for fun, like we talked about different numbers. I I was, went back and I reread in 2003, Warren Buffett came out with this article with Carol Loomis in, I think it was in Fortune, where he's talking about the trade deficit. And he had this idea where if we could balance the trade somewhat for the US by requiring these like voucher system, basically. It's always interesting to take the numbers that he points to at that time period and like what he's concerned about and then roll forward the, you know, like what, what have the numbers done since then? And is it even more concerning? So if, real quick, I could give you some of those. I looked them up recently. So he's talking about how in the US, World War II to the early 1970s, the US was a powerhouse. We were a trade surplus. Everyone else in the world, their factories were all bombed out. Like we really set our reputation as a premier country at that time period. And net investment, which means like how much of other countries' assets do you own versus how much of foreigners own US assets. We were positive 37 billion in 1950 and then positive 68 billion in 1970. So we owned more of the world's assets than they owned of ours. Late 1970s, trade reversed and the deficit was running at 1% of GDP. But net investment was still moving up because we were getting returns on our investment of our foreign ownership. So by 1980, it peaked at 380 billion we owned of net of what the rest of the world owned of the US. Well, when Buffett wrote this article when, in 2003, when he was concerned, the trade deficit was running at 4% of GDP and net investment was $2.5 trillion to the negative. So foreigners owned claim checks like you know bonds of the government and our corporations. They own real estate, they own equities. So 50-ish trillion is what Buffett came up with of a total kind of net wealth of the US. So that, that equates to about 5% of national wealth. We, you know, if you pictured us as like a family, we sold 5% of the farm basically to overconsume effectively. So today, when we, I looked up some of these numbers, the net international investment position in the US is negative 14 trillion on a roughly call it 140 trillion of total wealth. And that number, my personal bias is that that number is probably inflated by very low interest rates. But anyway, that's 10% of net wealth now that basically the rest of the world owns of, of our productive capacity because we've wanted to consume so much. And the trade deficit in the last 12 months is, has been $835 billion. And that's, if you call US GDP roughly 20 trillion. That's actually a similar kind of 5% GDP of the deficit is 5% of GDP. So all the numbers kind of basically doubled from when Buffett was concerned about them in 2003, maybe even a little bit more. So all of which is to say our sort of like premier catbird seat in the US as being the best place. And I would say our fiscal house is in less order than it was 20 years ago, even when Buffett was concerned about it, which just means that like any rich family, the more that you've sold off the farm, like sort of the less that you probably have to look forward to as far as consumption. At some point, you can't just always be running deficits forever and not have to balance it at some point. So perhaps who knows when, but that isn't a potential argument for wanting to maybe have more international exposure. Yeah, I'm the only one who really doesn't have much international exposure, which is funny because right. I, I guess I'm the only one with an accent. Yeah, I run to domestic US equity funds because they were the two. The first one was the easiest one to set up for me. And I just invest in my own funds. So it kind of makes it... If I was to sit down with a financial planner and show them what I had done, they would say that it's a bad idea and that I should get more international exposure. And I 100% agree that everybody's got a home country bias. What are the chances that the US is the country that outperforms over the next like whatever useful whatever life I've got left, 40, 50 years, whatever it is, the rest of the world, it's lowish. There's just so much competition out there. So I should have more international exposure. But at some point, I think I'll, I'll have an international fund and then that would be how I would get that international exposure. But it's not yet. Yeah, so I don't do it. But theoretically, it's, it's, it's a good idea. Wes? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think Toby kind of nailed it there. We, we usually show a chart of like the last hundred year history of uh, U.S. equities versus international equities, like five year rolling performance, and it literally looks like a sine wave or like a yo yo. And obviously, we're on the far right side of that graph where the U.S. has been winning for ten years and the international has been bombing out. But if history is any guide, you know <laughs> valuations matter. Uh, right now, develops twenty. U.S. is 30. And to Toby's point, deep values under 10 PE. International, it's even cheaper. So I'm a big fan of international diversification. And like Toby, you know, we in our own cooking. Our cooking just happens to already have international cooking. So it's a lot easier for us to do that. But yeah, if I didn't have a uh, international cake baked up, I didn't trust anyone else that I'd probably be a U.S. only cake eater as well. So I get where he's coming from, but I personally globally invest and like deep value around the globe. I will say this for the US, just to make a counterpoint on the other side. The US has been still remarkably successful, even over the last decade, of producing these phenomenal consumer franchise businesses that really the rest of the world just hasn't done other than China. China sort of seemed to be able to produce comparably big, comparably kind of great consumer franchise businesses. I just don't face any of them because I don't speak Chinese. I don't use any of them other than like, I've had a look at Alibaba's US website and it's kind of interesting, but I haven't bought anything on it. That's going to be the limitation. I think if you want to get some exposure, you've got to kind of get over the political issues in China, which are significant and to get access to the business, which to the businesses, which seem to be pretty good. Whereas when you look at the US, you know, you don't have any, you have increasing political issues for not as many as in China, and and you can get access to these very good businesses, and that's why the index looks the way it does. Like the top four or five businesses in an index are, in the S and P five hundred are pretty spectacular businesses. That they're expensive, but they're not as bubbly as uh, as we've seen at like a dot com bubble top. It's a really good point, and it always goes back to what does it truly mean to be diversified, and do you want to invest in something you don't truly understand? And I think at least for the four of us, we we are most comfortable with the U.S. market, and you know we. If you look at what total market cap compared to the rest of the world, it's like at 50-odd something. Then you could, all, of course, also look at the GDP of the US, which is probably close to 22 or something like that. So it's also like, what is your, what is your benchmark? It's hard. And, and I guess that's, um, that's a segue to, to, to the next question here, because I wanted to talk about different investment strategies. And I'm going to mess up this, this quote so, so Wes can set me straight here. But during this call, Wes have said multiple times something along the lines of, be religious and be religious about having many religions. And, uh, you know, as, as value investors, we taught early that value investing works because it doesn't work all the time. Like I could give Toby a jab here with, with value investing for him coming on the show and saying, oh, what's going on with value right now? But, you know, it is, if you look at the historical data, you know, that is true. There have been long periods where value didn't work, which is why it outperforms in the long run. So you need to stick with that strategy, especially whenever it's out of favor. So let me throw it over to, to Wes now that I've started sort of quoting you. Do you have anything in your investment strategy that is a timeless principle that never changes, a religion that never changes, if I can use that phrase? Investing, in my opinion, is 100% behavioral game. And so it's really important to find something you believe in and get religious about it at some point because religion helps reinforce discipline. Right. Because if you don't follow it, you feel like you're going to go to hell or something. Right. So it's like this weird mental game where where you don't want to ever be too dogmatic about anything. But in the context of investing, it's really important to be dogmatic about something. But then you have the other issue, whereas investing is not just behavioral, it's also math. And there's this thing called diversification and not having all your eggs in one basket or philosophy or ethos. Because a lot of times people think they're diversified, but they're not. And so to the extent that it's possible, and from a psychology standpoint, it's incredibly challenging, like it's very hard to be a Muslim and a Christian devout hardcore simultaneously. But in theory, if one is able to do that in their head, a lot of times you can gain benefits of owning two different religions that, you know, on any individual case-by-case basis. But to the extent you can do that, I think that's important. But to the extent you can't, like if you're a value investor and that's the only thing you can ever believe in, period, 
and anything else is just a bunch of baloney, i.e. your ability to be disciplined at the time that's quote unquote not working felt falters, it's not worth it. And so for me, going back to your original question, what are timeless principles? It's simple. Fear is a human condition. I think value captures that in the sense that you got to buy stuff that everyone hates. It's ugly. It's nasty. You know, why would you want to do that? So I like value for that reason. But then I'm also a big believer in greed and people are crazy and they're speculative and they're maniacs, right? Well, that's called momentum. And we can all talk about, you know, why that's crazy and it's against the fish and mark hypothesis. But if you've ever met anyone in a sentiment driven market, like right now, to deny momentum is like to deny that you need water and oxygen to live. It's just, you're wrong. So I'm, I'm a believer in fear and greed, basically. It's that simple. I agree with everything that Wes just said, then I wouldn't disagree with anything, any point that he's made then. Although the only thing I, I saw an online poll that said, do you need air and water to survive? And 97% of people said yes. So there's like 3% <laughs> of people out there clicking no. So I want to meet those people and find out what they're doing. I don't know. It's, uh, I, I agree with everything Wes says. I just, I'm constitutionally a value investor. So I, I may need at some stage to put some money into Wes's momentum funds to, just to balance myself out. But I'm not yet at that point. I think that things have a value and I think of myself as like a, a business guy rather than an investor. I'm an entrepreneur more than I'm an, an investor and I just look at these businesses as, you know, as businesses rather than as bits of paper that trade and I try to buy on the basis of the returns that I'm going to get and then if the, if the position goes against me, then I'm still, I'm still in the mindset of an investor. I look at the, of, a, of a business guy, of, a, of an entrepreneur, I look at the the performance of the underlying business. I have read all of the research on, on momentum. I've read Wes's book on momentum. I'm 100% intellectually there with momentum. It's just that last sort of emotional step that I can't make, which is why I will probably have to outsource it to Wes at some stage, but not yet. But that's sort of, I think that behavioral errors are the most, are the thing that causes most people to underperform. And most of that is just a lack of conviction in their own, in their own strategy. So you need conviction in what you're doing. You need the religion. You need a code, as I always like to say. Toby, do you have any kind of threshold for, for pain or any kind of data where you're saying, I need to, to step away from value as my main strategy? And the reason why I'm asking is that we have a lot of value investors following the show, and a lot of them have been through a lot of pain, you know, with everything that's been going on in the financial markets. And like they hear all these things, they see all these billionaires doing XYZ, they hear about whatever. And a lot of them are, they're changing what they do. They're changing how they, how they think about things because it's been, perhaps because it's been too long now. I believe in being rational. I believe in rationality. I'm a Bayesian updater of like the, every, every year that we get some more data that favors some other aspect, I try to include that. But you've always got the tension of when something looks worst, it's often the point that it's about to perform best and vice versa. But you need to be Bayesian about it too. You have to be including the, the additional bits of data that come in and, and thinking about whether that changes it. But I don't really suffer from FOMO. I wish everybody the very best in the market. I hope everybody does really, really well and crushes it. I'm playing my own game, which I really enjoy. It keeps me intellectually engaged. It's really fun. And I'm a business value guy at my core. So that'll be the last thing that goes. Jake, timeless principles in your portfolio? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, both of the answers that they gave are are quite satisfactory. For me, it's very similar, a little bit, probably more sort of Toby, where like I like the brain damage of figuring out businesses, and it keeps me engaged with the world and kind of solving puzzles. And you know, I like I never forget that I always own a business, and it's always important to me. Like cash flow always matters, and and then also what is done with that cash flow inside the business, the capital allocation matters tremendously as well. And then, of course, kind of the, the typical margin of safety. Like, I, I just want to get way more than what I feel like I'm paying for. I want to get a deal. Like, I want to feel like I'm getting away with something. And, and then, probably the last thing would just never lose sight of like, what is my edge in this? And I don't have a better analytical edge. I'm not smarter than anybody, but I do think I have a good shot at I'm hiding here in, in Folsom, California, away from a lot of the noise. And I, you know, go on my walks and I listen to 
to Warren and Charlie talk and I, I insulate a lot. And, and that gives me, I think, a potential behavioral edge where the lower the price goes, the less of a good analyst I need to be. So the more margin of safety I have, the less smart I actually need to be. So I try to keep that front and center all the time. And then just be patient and recognize I'm not going to get all of them. I'm going to pick some things that are wrong, but this is a probabilistic game over a long career. I think I'll do just fine as long as I stick to my my principles and where I think I've got a little bit of an edge and, and eventually it'll work out just fine. So Wes, continue talking about which type of validation are you looking for before saying this is a, I haven't invested like this before. You know, just like you, I remember you coming on here on the show some, some years ago and you're like, I started out as a value investor. I saw all this data validation for momentum. I needed to, I needed to do something about that. Which type of, of data validation are you looking for before you change your, your mindset? Well, for me, basically, I had to write an entire book. I needed to maybe compliment another religion because like, I can't disagree with anything these guys say because in my DNA, I am fundamentally a value investor. I get it. Why do I think that value works, right? Fama told me it's because they got all this extra risk, blah, blah, blah. Then I start thinking, you know what? I like Ben Graham's answer better because it makes more sense based on empirical observation of the marketplace. Mr. Market can get crazy. So, and fundamentals, it makes sense. Like if something makes $10 a year, and you know it's going to keep making $10 a year, you always have that center of gravity and the price will bounce around it. You know, I can exploit that. What I came around to believe in is my fundamental belief is people lack discipline, period. That's my first principle. And that's why I believe in the value religion. That was my first principle. Then I started thinking, okay, Wes, if that's your first principle that you think people are crazy and lack discipline, and that's why you believe value works, then fundamentally, why don't you apply that core first principle and see if it espouses itself anywhere else in the marketplace? Oh, there's this thing called momentum. And there's this thing called people are maniacs, sentiment-driven, FOMO, whatever you want to call it. There's reflexivity in prices, right? Like prices keep moving. Now you've got lower cost of capital. You could reinforce, buy cheaper stuff than the other guy. My first principle that also shows up in another religion called momentum. And then once I got my head around the fact that they're not really different religions, they're just ways to exploit human behavior differently in a disciplined way, then I was able in my own head. And so in some sense, I really do have one religion. But another way to think about it, sub-religion is one is value, one's called momentum. But in my head, honestly, they're the same thing. And if I have the ability to be to Jake's point, the key edge is discipline. And, and you know, we, we've always, we've talked about like the diet thing, right? I learned this in the Marine Corps, everything in my whole life. Okay. You want to lose weight? Exercise more, eat less, period. It's fundamental, right? It will happen. Why are there 10,000 diets? Why are there 10,000 programs? Why are there 10,000 YouTubers telling you all the 50 million ways to achieve something that's fundamental? Eat less, PT more, have discipline, right? Same thing investing, be disciplined, think long-term, focus on fundamentals. Great. Let's buy cheap stocks everyone hates and let's buy winners. Who knows when one, one's going to work versus the other? I really believe that this is what I've came to the conclusion. I could change my mind, but that's, and this new market is only reiterating my faith in my religion that people are stupid and don't have discipline. It's crazy to me. It doesn't really bother me whether, I think that this, I, I, was, I was like, where's very much Ben Graham, prefer Ben Graham's explanation, but I think that there's also a large component of it that Famer and French are probably right. There is a big risk component to value as well. It's a little bit of both, but I'm at the point where I really don't care what the reasons are why something, if it's cheap, in the sense that I can calculate some yield and some, some growth component to it, and it looks like it's more than the risk that you're taking on and more than other alternatives. And I think it's a good thing to do. And I, that's why I, I don't find it hard to, to be a value guy through these periods of time because I can put these positions on and I can see that there is an expected return in them. And it's to the point that we've all been making when prices are lower, expected returns do tend to be higher. 
And I just know that even though it can go against you for a long period of time, and honestly, this one's been a lot longer than, than I would have planned at the start, I still think that the underlying theory is sound, the logic to it is sound. It's just a matter of time and patience in the market and eventually, like Wes says, giving the example of losing weight, like that's, I just put it the other way around. I think you need to eat less than you burn. And if you do it that way, it compounds over time. It takes three or four years. The invest, investing is exactly the same. You got to get up every morning and do your exercise and you got to be careful with what you eat and you got to do it for years. But at the end of that, you see a result true in the markets as well. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com WSB. That's fundrise.com WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify dot com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. So let's focus on the long term. Jake, do you see any secular trends for the next decade? And I have to ask if you do, if, if that's something you would would see out with us and how you positioned yourself? I would say that I have, as I've gotten further into this game, moved further and further away from secular anything, whether it's interest rate driven, macro anything, GDP related. I think it's all interesting stuff and it, it no doubt matters, but I just don't feel like I could know it. I just, it's too hard to figure out. And like any complex adaptive system, 
the initial conditions are recognizable. That's here's where we are. Where exactly it ends up in the end state is incredibly difficult because there's so many little ways that it can go that will create feedback loops that then move you way further afield than you ever would have thought imaginable. So I really, I do less and less of that stuff. And I just try to think more and more about these businesses that I own. I know they're impacted by all of it. I know it's important and it would be awesome to know it, but I just, I just can't wrap my mind around it enough to feel like I'm actually helping my analysis by trying to untangle some of those rat's nests. So it's less and less a, a part of my, my process. Toby, any any secular trends you're looking at? I'm not necessarily talking about the macro picture, but in general, any consumer behavior that are changing that we should be aware of? Well, one consumer behavior is that consumers started consuming value stocks in about September last year, and uh, they started consuming my kind of value stocks in about February this year. I really don't because I'm pretty systematic and pretty quantitative about it. So I I buy good things when they get cheap. I care that they're cheaper than they're good, but I tend to lean on the... So, you know, I, I, it's funny though. I, I, think, I do think it's funny how often value gets in front of macro trends that people start talking about subsequently. So I was buying home builders last year, had home builders for a little while, and now that's become like a story where we've under, evidently we've underinvested in homes. People locked in, they're doing, looking for houses to buy. Houses have exploded. The home builders are going to do a lot of work. Home building at some stage is going to transition into momentum, but it started out as value and I didn't buy it because I had any insight into the consumers. I just thought it looked like it was at a cyclical low and it looked cheap on that cyclical low and so I bought it. And I think that often that's what happens with value. If you, I don't really know why it's there. I just know that it is very cheap and subsequently the macro picture sort of colors itself in. And I don't know if that's real or if that's just the media picks up on the story, analysts pick up on the story and they add a narrative to it and it's appealing. I try not to do too much sort of picking where the consumer is going to go, just play the field as you find it. So one of the most popular guests we have here on the show, that is uh, Colin Roach. And he often talks about how there is no such thing as passive investing, because even passive index funds are still measured against a constructed benchmark, which you might say are actively constructed because someone still decided this is what it should be. And, you know, each investment strategy also has its own risk profile. We can't all compare to the S&P 500 if we do something completely different. So starting with you, Toby, what is your benchmark, if any, for your investment strategy? And, and why is that your benchmark? How do you think about that? I have benchmarks that are value benchmarks, but I, I think about it a little bit more broadly. I think it should be like S&P 500 or even the global. I use S&P 500 right now, but even the global total market would be appropriate if, you were, if I had some international exposure. I agree with Cullen. It's kind of a funny, S&P 500 is set by a committee and they actively decide to include or not include Tesla based on some things. They did the same thing with Google. And then it's, it's market capitalization and float adjusted, which float makes a whole lot of sense for people who are trying to run index tracking funds. Float doesn't, might not make a whole lot of sense for the average punter out there. So I, I think his point is, is fair that even passive indexes aren't really passive. I wouldn't want to come up with another one. So I think that they're doing okay. Just like whenever Buffett talks about accounting rules, he's like, Gap is just so silly, but I don't want to come up with it with like Gap version 2.0. I could have a go at a few of the Gap rules and fix some things out. I wouldn't run investment gains and losses through the P&L. Yeah, that's a good point. I mentioned Colin Rhodes before, and we had him on because he was launching a new ETF and we talked about how to invest in ETFs. And he mentioned, sure. uh, Wes, that he, um, he set it up through, through Alpha Architect. And so I, I was just wondering, like, whenever he, because all ETFs is, uh, have to choose a benchmark, or is it you, is it the SEC, or are you choosing one yourself? Like, how does this benchmark thing work whenever you go to an ETF website and you see, oh, it's benchmarked towards that index? So anytime you have a registered fund, i.e. like a mutual fund or an ETF, in your prospectus, you have to have some benchmark. It's basically what is something that is broad based and appropriate, like with some sort of risk profile, right? So if you do US stocks, well, SP 500 is probably in the ballpark. And then there's nuance within that. Well, I'm doing value stocks that are only the mid caps in SP. You know, you can get nuance, but technically all you need is a broad based benchmark that roughly approximates the same risk profile that you choose to take in your investment product. That's a mandatory requirement. 
any time you want to learn about a fund and you know people think about it less or more depending on who you're dealing with but you technically have to have it just read their prospectus it'll have like a a benchmark outline in the prospectus i go so many different places different sizes of companies international or us picking one benchmark and it changes all the time too depending on whether where the opportunities are so i do not fit well into any kind of style boxes therefore it's it's hard to have a a well-defined benchmark. I would probably choose a some because a lot of times a lot of the money that I manage is like someone's entire net worth. So you know, if I was just running a fund that was a a little sleeve of someone's net worth and they were using me for some specific you know style or or size, then I would say like, okay, I should be compared to that specific benchmark because that's the, really the opportunity cost of that sleeve is what they would have put it in otherwise. But for me, you know, managing entire net worth of a lot of people, I think more actually of that, like a, a global, like the MSCI for both equity and bonds in some kind of mixture, sort of just like planet Earth return. If you could go anywhere and kind of buy anything and, and you owned everything, what would it look like versus that? So I think that's probably a little bit more appropriate for my, my style. But, you know, I, the US based investor, it could, you could make the argument that. Hey, I don't want you to manage it for me. I'm just going to stick it in the S&P 500 and pay no no fees at all and I think that's a perfectly reasonable thing to do, especially over long time periods. I don't know how well it'll do over the next 5 to 7 years. I think just as a base rate bet from today's prices, I I would be a little pessimistic as far as uh, that it won't look like the last 10 years. But in general, I think that the other question that is I think missing in all this is over what time frame so we have a benchmark, right? And over one day against the S&P 500, what do you look like? Okay, well, like that is obviously just total random noise. Over one year, okay, well, maybe a little bit more information in that, but I would still put that not that much different than one day. That's closer to me to one day than it is to actually like 10 years. So it's this catch-22 where unfortunately, in order to untangle luck versus skill, you need a pretty large data set of time and maybe even like sort of multiple market environments. Uh, you know, if you're just in a one-way market like we've been in the last call it 12 years, I'm not quite sure that you can say full cycle how good of an investor someone is if they, you know, like the the bet has been to be balls to the wall risk and that has been the way to bet for the last 12 years, but I think we all kind of intuitively know that 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 will come at a cost someday and that maybe it's not, you know, a foolproof plan. So I think the time horizon is also for this game needs to be measured over much longer periods than probably people are typically comfortable with. And it's unfortunate. I don't have a better answer, but I do think that benchmarks can lead to short-term thinking that I think actually leads to a sub-optimization. Sub uh, I had a look recently at the, you know, John Hussman has this method of calculating expected returns over the next decade, and he uses the Schiller PE. And then he assumes a long run average Schiller PE, and he assumes that you mean revert to that over a decade. And we can pull up the, the dividend yield of the S&P 500. And then he puts all of these things together and you can track it on a day-by-day basis. So I, have this, I just have this little web scraper that pulls this data and then I chart it. And I just was looking the other day for the, uh, the trailing 10-year return on the S&P 500 is like 16%, including dividends, which is like, that's about as good as it gets. And the forward return is now negative on the index, but that includes, it's negative 0.1%, but that includes 1.3% in dividends. So the index will be negative about 1.2% for the next decade on an annual basis, you know, based on assuming that the mean reversion, assuming we go back to the average, assuming it takes a decade, all those sort of things. I will say it's been remarkably predictive, that little chart, as simple as, as, simple as it is. But I just think there's, there's never been, or there's not never been, but the times when there have been as wide a disconnect between the trailing 10-year and the forward 10-year, you know, they're all notorious kind of dates in that, in that chart. It's not a prediction. It's just, just an observation. Does that mean revert profit margins or interest rates or anything else that are kind of tipped all in one direction? It doesn't include those things. So, you know, you can come up with a more... So you have more ways to lose. There are more ways that. to lose than, than it looks like on the surface. But I, I already sound crazy enough saying negative yeah. returns. So 
that's all I'll say. Wes, I'm, I'm curious to hear how you think about risk in, in comparison, because uh, like Toby just said, you're the S&P 500, you know, 16%, and you're like, oh, that's great. And then, you know, Jake might come in as a, and I'm just, I'm just using Jake as an example uh, here, so, but he might come in and say, well, you know, I, I, I achieved 14%, but I did it with a lot less risk. And we discussed the whole thing multiple times here on the show. We don't really consider standard deviation the best measure of risk. We don't really are not too big of a fan of the shop ratio. So can we look at this any other way that, you know, you compare the S&P 500 with what it is, and then you compare XYZ Jake's portfolio, lower return, but perhaps also lower risk. How would you make that comparison? There's thousands of papers you can reference on this, right? In the end, I think it, you got to just use common sense, which is a dangerous thing to do at some level. And say like, okay, let's just break it into the, the biggest muscle movements possible. U.S. stocks or maybe global stocks that uh, I think Toby mentioned that. That's kind of like one risk bucket. Global bonds might be a risk bucket. Maybe commodities could be a risk bucket as a third one. And then whatever you think your average allocation is to those broad buckets you can access almost for free. If you're dynamic, you know, it is what it is. But if, you're, if we're talking like a 20, 30-year benchmark to Jake's point, like, hey, you're going to try to beat that over the cycle. If on average, you believe that your, your process is going to be 50% stocks, 30% bonds, and 20% commodity or commodity-like investments, well, even if you're dynamic, let's just use that as your baseline benchmark, and we're going to assess it over a 20-year horizon. I think doing anything beyond that, it gets crazy. I think it's too much noise, not enough signal, and, and you lose kind of the forest through the trees a lot. So I just picked the, the broad asset class that you're vaguely going to be investing in. It's probably going to have the same rough risk return. And if you can beat that, great. You should probably do your process. If you can't, probably buy the Vanguard fund equivalent. And most important point, though, is Jake's point, is benchmarks are awesome in theory, because in theory, they enforce discipline, but they're terrible in practice because of the short-term nature of them, and they force humans to be back to being humans again. So I'm a fan, but I'm much more fan of understanding the learning process, which everyone is here, I'm sure. All right, Jens. It's always a pleasure having these quarterly meetings talking about investing. I think I don't only speak for myself, but for all the listeners when I say that I always learn a ton from our discussions. And can I say, especially when we disagree, I tend to learn even more. So before I let you go, I'd like to give all of you the opportunity to tell the audience where they can learn more about you. Wes, please go first. Alpharchitect.com or on Twitter at Alpharchitect. Toby? My website is acquirersmultiple.com or acquirersfunds.com. My Twitter handle is Greenback, G-R-E-E-N-B-A-C-K-D, where I post four or five times a day. All right. Yay. So this great resignation, I guess, has been happening in the US where I guess 4 million people quit their jobs in July. And with that comes a lot of orphan then retirement accounts. And this happens to be something that my firm does a lot of is um, people leave a job. They have this account. They're not even paying attention to it anymore. Those long-term retirement dollars tend to be a pretty good fit for, for a value approach, I think, maybe even more so than an after-tax brokerage. So I put together, I had the team put together a little special thing for, for the audience. Uh, so if you go to orphanira.com backslash TIP, there's a little special in there. Uh, and because I like to talk to every single new investor to make sure that it's a good fit, we only have a kind of a limited amount of bandwidth that we can onboard people in a in a typical month. So there's six spots for for whenever this airs that month that will we have time to be able to bring on board. So if you if you want to get in there, I would suggest like don't wait. But so that's that's where uh, if people want to get some help with an orphan retirement account. All right, perfect. It's been handed off. All right, Jens. I look forward to doing this again next quarter. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Stig. Good seeing everybody. Cheers, everyone. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network and learn how to achieve financial independence. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, 
go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.